Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law. That is good, that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin who dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh, I serve the law of sin. Not too long ago, I, mean, I guess maybe it's a couple of years ago, but it happens on a regular basis. I had a, a lunch meeting with a, a gentleman who uh, wanted to talk to me. He was in deep discouragement. And in the conversation at lunch, as he talked to me, he began to describe what was going on in his life. And it was a conversation that honestly, I've had dozens of times with men and women through the years of ministry. And, and what he was describing was just this, this failure, continual failure in his life to get victory over a particular sin that just seemed to have him by the throat. And he, he talked about all that he was doing. He's reading his Bible. He's praying. He's going to church. He was serving the Lord. He had an accountability group. He had all these checks and balances in place in his life to try to help him with this battle. And yet it was not working. And he just came and he just, he was truthful. He was honest with me. He said, you know, honestly, it's at the point right now where I can't even say that I had the desire much anymore to keep fighting this sin. It's almost like, do I just give up and let it go and God will sort it out at glory, you know? And I could hear his discouragement after all that work and, and I could relate to it because there's been seasons of my life where my sanctification was moving at a speed that resembled a glacier, Right? It just wasn't working well. You've heard the statement, two steps forward, one step back, you know, that kind of thing. There have been seasons in my life through the decades where my sanctification was, you know, two steps forward, three steps back. <laughs> and it just seemed like it could get no traction at all in, in this battle towards sin. And I'm sure many of you can relate to this. This is a common experience. It's a common struggle that we have with sin, which is why it's so important that we understand what Paul is teaching us in this passage in Romans on sanctification. The doctrine of sanctification is the portion that we're in within Romans. That's the, that's the theme of this portion of Scripture. And it's an important one because sanctification deals with God conforming us to the image of Christ, making us holy, turning us in to men and women of God who resemble our Savior. 
And this passage that we're in this morning, through the years, it has been incredible comfort to me, uh, especially in deep times of discouragement and defeat. I have come back to this. I think I pretty much had this passage uh, memorized by the time I was 18 years of age. There's never a year in my life at one time or another where I do not come back to this passage and read it and preach its truth into my heart and meditate upon it because the message is so important. And so I think when we understand what Paul is saying in this section and through the the grace of our Heavenly Father have it applied into our lives, we will find that the war within us, which we all fight against sin, will become less discouraging and we will experience more victory over sin. So we're going to dig into this passage this morning with two truths and we'll make applications as we go throughout the passage on these truths. The first truth is this, comes from verses 13 to 23. Every Christian faces, every Christian faces an unavoidable internal dilemma. Every Christian faces an unavoidable internal dilemma. Now this dilemma is not the responsibility and the fault of the law. It's not as if this dilemma is created in us because there is a systemic issue or a problem with the law of God. Paul starts out in verse 13, did that which is good, in other words, the law, because he's been talking about the law of God, the moral law of God, did the moral law of God then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and throughout the, through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. <clears throat> the context here is that Paul has been addressing you know, Jews who have been raised within the law, and the law was special to them, and he's addressing their relation to it. He's addressing uh, potential concerns that they might have as Jewish Christians, and also abuses that were taking place by perhaps Gentile Christians or Jewish Christians. And through this passage of Scripture and leading up to it in the context, he said several things about the law, which would help us understand why people may be responding negatively to what Paul is teaching. Back in chapter 5, verse 20, Paul said the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. In chapter 6, verse 14, for sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. And then even in this chapter, as we saw last week in chapter 7, verse 4, likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ. So, you know, to a Jewish person, a Jewish believer who's been raised in the law, who has been taught to respect the law of Moses, they hear these comments and they're going to be concerned because it sounds like Paul is condemning the law as if the law is responsible for our sin and for the evil that we commit. And the legalists in the church, they're going to be alarmed by what Paul is saying because he's challenging their entire framework for how do I relate to God, the things that I do and don't do that ensure that I'm okay with God. And then you always have the group in every church, the the libertines, the antinomians, the ones who are like, yeah, great. What I'm hearing Paul says is there's no law. We can just do whatever we want to do. We can live however we want to live. And so these responses to what Paul is saying are are a part of the context of this passage. And all three responses are wrong. They don't understand the gospel. 
and the role that the law plays in the gospel. You know, as we saw last week, the moral law of God really plays three very important roles. First of all, it exposes sin, and it teaches us what sin actually looks like. It's through the law of God that we know a particular action or thought or deed is a violation of, of God's holiness. So the law exposes what sin really is, and then it provokes sin. It shows how absolutely, deeply, thoroughly sinful we are. Some of you guys experienced this on Christmas Day. I mentioned it last week. You know, with children, you see this. You can have all of these presents over here and all of these shiny new things, and you can tell your child, now listen, I want you to play with these toys, but this box over here, I don't want you to go play with it. You can play with all of this. You don't play with that. And you leave the room, and what will that little two- or three-year-old do? He'll make a beeline for the box. Okay? This, is, this is hardwired within us. There is something within us in our human condition that when we are told not to do something or we are told to do something by the law, whether it's the law of God or the law of civilization, there's something in us that, I'm going to do the opposite. See, the law does this. It provokes sin. It shows us how deeply, thoroughly corrupted we are by sin. And the third thing it does is it condemns sin. It puts the holiness of God before us in stark relief, and it shows us what it looks like to live a life that's been sanctified. So our dilemma is not due to there being an issue with the law of God. Our dilemma that every one of us has is due to the indwelling sin nature that each of us has. If you're a believer, you may have given your life to Christ, but you still have an indwelling sin nature that creates this dilemma, creates it for you and me, creates it for Paul. And we see this in the passage here. You know, kind of interestingly, through the, through the centuries, especially uh, the, before the Reformation, uh, this passage that we're looking at this morning was interpreted very differently. It was taught that this was Paul talking about his life before he became a Christian. Because, I mean, as you read these verses and you hear, I mean, this is St. Paul, the apostle, right? I mean, the great man of God. And what's he saying in this passage? The things that I know I do, the things that I want to do, those are not the things that I do. The things that I don't want to do, the things that I hate, that's exactly what I do. I'm a slave to sin. I, I mean, you can imagine how people's heads were exploding, especially the churches that elevate men and women to sainthood and put them up on a pedestal. This can't be describing the Apostle Paul after he came to Christ. This must be B.C. Paul, before Christ Paul. No, not at all. Paul is talking about himself here after his conversion to Christ. And one of the ways you know that this is the case is because earlier in the chapter, when he's talking about himself as an unbeliever and what the law did to him as an unbeliever, the tense of all the verbs was past tense. But here beginning in verse 14, the tense of the verbs is what? Present tense. He's talking about himself right then. And his response to sin, his desire for righteousness and godliness in this passage, this is the response of a believer, someone who has trusted in Christ, not the response of an unbeliever. So he's describing what it was like for him, and he's describing what it is like for us. 
and this dilemma. In verses 14 to 20, he gives two different uh, descriptions, but they are very similar, and each section ends in the same way. In verse 14, he says, So the trouble is not with the law, for it is spiritual and good. The trouble is with me, for I am all too human, a slave to sin. I don't really understand myself, for I want to do what is right, but I don't do it. Instead, I do what I hate. But if I know that what I am doing is wrong, this shows that I agree that the law is good. So I am not the one doing wrong. It is sin living in me that does it. There's his first description. The second description is very similar, and it ends the same way. I know that nothing good lives in me. That is in my sinful nature. I want to do what is right, but I can't. I want to do what is good, but I don't. I don't want to do what is wrong, I do it anyway. But if I do what I don't want to do, I am not really the one doing wrong, it is sin living in me that does it. Now listen, that's a great description of our dilemma. But when you look at that passage, it's interesting, as he ends the first section in chapter 17, and verse 17, he says, so I am not the one doing wrong, it's sin living in me that does it. And he ends the second portion in verse 20, I am not really the one doing wrong, it is sin living in me that does it. He repeats this twice. You know, and at first glance, it kind of looks like, in, you know, in those verses that Paul is deflecting responsibility for his actions. You know, is this like the first century version of the devil made me do it kind of thing, right? It's not me, the devil made me do it. Well, that's not what he's saying here at all. He's not deflecting responsibility. What's actually happening is Paul is being ruthlessly honest and realistic with us. He understands something. He's recognizing that the ongoing problem of the sin nature that lives within us and expresses itself through our bodies, through our actions, through our attitudes, and our deeds, he's dealing with reality. This is our life. We have this tension and dilemma within us. You know, recently, um, I was having a conversation with someone, and they asked me, a very loaded question, right? Don't you just love loaded questions? Especially if it's a loaded question that has an agenda behind it, you know? I have this inner alarm, and it sounds like, you know, the robot from Lost in Space. Warning, Will Robinson. Well, you know, it starts going off in my head. And, and he asked this question, and, and man, I was hearing, warning, Jerry Clem, warning, run away, run away, you know, that type of thing. He asked me this. He said, let me ask you, he said, do you think, you know, addictions like alcoholism and other addictions, do, do you think that that's, you know, hardwired in us genetically? Um, you know, that our sexual orientation, and this is when the radar really started going off, right? Um, our sexual orientation is just, I mean, it's part of our genetic code, and therefore, you know, someone who is struggling with alcoholism or some other addiction or is having a gender confusion or obesity or whatever it may be, that they really can't help it, that it's, it's just part of who they are, you know? And so, I, obviously, I knew that there was, this was a lot here, and I said, wait, you know, what, what we have to do is we have to back up for a second. Your question it's a great question, right? How many of you have had that question before or wondered about it? Yeah, a lot of us have, or you've heard it. 
Um, I said, you have to understand what's, what's going on with us as human beings. And, and here I am, I'm, 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 I'm going to start from the beginning, right? The fact is, is that we are born fallen, enmeshed in sin. Our inner man is thoroughly corrupted, radically affected by sin, only loves to sin. And that inner man, what the Bible calls the old man, he's housed in a vessel, the body that has been drastically affected by sin. We, we have to acknowledge that because of the fall, this has had ramifications and impacts on us in the physical realm. It, it has impacts on our social and our cultural settings, which then create wounds in us at the psychological and emotional level. Sin is behind all of this. And as you go through the time and as sin, the fall of mankind and original sin affects us at the physical level and the emotional level, the cultural level, there's all kinds of ramifications to this, Right? And so for some of us, it is in our genetic code that we can't hold liquor, right? And your brain chemistry is different than other people. You process alcohol different than those of us like who come from, I think, maybe Germanic backgrounds, you know, and, and, or whatever. I mean, it's just different. We're different. And so to think about it like this, you have this body, this existence that has been affected by sin so dramatically, you have a sin nature that then takes advantage of every weakness that is in our body, whether it's physical, emotional, psychological, because of wounds that others have, it capitalizes on those weaknesses and then we sin we drink too much or we do this or we eat too much or whatever the case may be right and then Christ comes along and saves us he redeems us and all those struggles go away overnight right no you see, what's happened is in that inner man that used to be enslaved to sin, that loved sin, that was characterized by sin, we died with Christ. Remember Romans 6? We've been united to Christ. We were nothing but sin and harmony with sin. And Christ has ripped away that mastery of sin in our lives. And he's come in and he's united himself to us. So that we are this new inner man that loves the law of God, that has been redeemed. We're new creations in Jesus Christ. But guess what? This new inner man is still housed in an unredeemed body. And this new inner man is housed in an unredeemed body, a body that one day will be redeemed. And all of these issues that we have with the flesh and our physical and emotional and all that junk, it will all be healed. But that inner man that loves Christ is housed in that kind of vessel. And on top of that, here's this old sin nature over here. Doesn't have authority over us anymore, but boy, it sure can run its mouth. And it sure can attack. And it can tempt and it will use the weaknesses of our human existence against us, whether those weaknesses are physical or psychological or emotional, whatever they may be, in order to express itself as sinful actions. Are you tracking with me here? Nod your head yes or no, or else I'm going to go through it all over again, and we won't beat anybody to the restaurants. Okay, thanks, Eric. He's over here nodding anxiously, okay? We've got to understand this. We have to recognize 
that this is what is going on. This is the source of the dilemma that is inside of us, okay? This is the war that we have that indwelling sin that is no longer our master, but is still attacking this new inner man that we are that's been redeemed and it's expressing itself through our unredeemed human, human, humanity, okay? That unredeemed humanity is one day going to be redeemed. Chapter 8 is all about that. Creation itself is groaning. We're groaning. We have this treasure, this beautiful, redeemed inner man, but it is housed in a tent that is falling apart, that has been affected by sin. And so you're a Christian, and you love God, and you love the Lord, but you know what? Your body is still bearing the consequences of original sin. And that's why... The bottle, or the pill, or the image, or the food, or whatever it may be, will have an effect upon us. You know, Paul in in verses 21 and 23 summarizes this dilemma for us. And interestingly, he, he uses the word law to do it. Again, he's all about, he's bringing law back into it. But he uses the law differently here, three different ways. And so as I read this, I'm going to try to kind of break it down so that you're able to track with what Paul is talking about here. In verse 21, he says, so I find it to be a law. Now here he's just saying a general life principle. Here's a truth about life, right? That when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. So I find this law, I find this general life principle, I want to do good, I want to do what's right to the Lord, and there is evil right there with me. In verse 22, for I delight in the law of God. This is the the normal understanding of law, the moral law of God. I delight in the moral law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war. I see in my inner being a power, a force, a presence that is waging war against the law of my mind. Again, the law of the mind, this is this, is this new inner man, this, this mind that has been renewed, being renewed by the gospel of Jesus Christ, this mind that loves the law, this inner person whose mind and heart is directed towards the Lord and it's been changed. And what do I have? I have this force, this power, this presence in my life that is waging war against this new me. And it's making me captive to it, to this power, to this presence of sin that dwells in my members. He's being ruthlessly honest. How many of us have not had an experience, if you're a believer, where you want to do good, you know it's the right thing to do, and this is what you're expressing in your heart and in your prayers and in your thoughts, and dadgummit, you do the exact opposite. Let's just be honest. How many of you that describes you this morning? Raise your hand. Yeah. Oh, come on. You're lying, Andrew Godfrey. Raise that hand. I know. (laughs) He's shaking his head. He agrees. Right? We all have had this experience. You see, in the first half of Romans chapter 7, Paul is saying something profound. He's saying, if you're an unbeliever, if you're not a follower of Christ, you can't keep the law. You cannot obey the moral law of God. And what it does is it's showing you as an unbeliever how badly you need Jesus Christ. 
And if you're a seeker this morning, this first half of this chapter has been all for you saying, turn your life to Christ. That's your only hope. In the second half of this chapter, in this section, he's talking to us believers. And you know what he's showing us? He's showing us that we too cannot keep the law of God in our own power and strength. That our only hope, Jesus Christ. Remember chapter 6. We're dead to sin. But sin is not dead to us. And as long as we live in unredeemed, fallen human bodies, our redeemed inner person must contend with our sinful nature try, that is trying to regain control. This is every one of our dilemma if we're a believer in Jesus Christ. It's our common experience. Paul did his best, and he was continually failing. I find a perverse sense of comfort there. Okay? I mean, if Paul, the apostle, this great man of God, found this to be his experience, no wonder that happens to me. Dr. Jack Arnold wrote, Paul learned that sin is not only doing something wrong, it is also trying to do something right in our own strength. Sin is not only just trying to do something wrong, it's trying to do something right in our own strength. Every Christian, we face this dilemma. It's an unavoidable internal dilemma. We can't solve the dilemma on our own. We don't have the strength for it. When we try to do what is right through our own strength, we just simply sin. We need help. And that brings us to the final point of the passage, right? Every Christian faces an unavoidable internal dilemma, and every Christian has an undefeated eternal deliverer. Verse 24 says, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord, so then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Everything that Paul has been writing about sanctification is leading us up to this point, and especially he's beginning to tee us up for chapter 8, where he's going to unpack and just bring this home. And next week, we're going to start a series of messages called Life in the Spirit. Dr. Randy Pope is going to be here. He's going to preach the first two of the first three messages on this chapter. We're going to be in chapter 8, guys, January and February. It is that important of a chapter John Piper has called it not only the most beautiful chapter in the Bible, but in his opinion, the most important chapter in the Bible for a Christian to understand. What we have to understand is that we cannot make ourselves holy. We can't willpower our way to defeat sin. We can't white-knuckle ourselves to righteousness. We cannot rely upon ourselves to see sin and addiction and ungodly habits defeated in our lives. This does not work. The key to us having uh, victory and defeating sin within us is to appropriate the help that Christ gives us in the Holy Spirit. That's our hope. That's our solution. We're going to have victory over all these struggles. It comes down to appropriating the person and the power and the work of the Holy Spirit, which Christ has given to us. So the question is, how do we do that? How do we experience and appropriate this help? 
This is how he's ending this chapter, and then it's going to carry us over into chapter 8, which is all about life in the Spirit. But there's a couple of things in these verses. Verse 24, first of all, we must continually cry out in humble despair, asking for deliverance and help. Oh, wretched man that I am. Do you hear the emotion in Paul's words there? This is his cry of despair to God. But let's don't miss how important it is for all of us to continually be crying out in humble despair, asking for deliverance from the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, I think part of the issue is for us as Christians and believers, we may cry out for help, but our approach is often flawed. There's a flawed way and there's a fruitful way that we can cry out to God. And I think for many of us, our cry is rooted in legalism. And too many of us are, are crying out in a way that does not bring power. I'm very familiar with this approach. I will, I will cry out to God and it just seems like my prayers are just bouncing off the ceiling and ricocheting right back into my head. You ever felt that way? It's like, are you even listening to me, God? What's going on? Well, part of the reason is the way I cry out to God is flawed and it's rooted in legalism. It's rooted in the legalism that I think many of us naturally drift to even if we were not raised in it. Let me, let me illustrate it to you like this. Um, I know it doesn't look like it right now, but I love to, to, to lift weights, especially bench press. I love the bench press, right? And when you bench press and you're really working it hard, those of you who've ever done bench pressing, you know, you have sets and you're pumping this iron, you're laying on the bench and you're, you know, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. First set, yeah. Put on more weight. Second set, yeah. That third set, what are you trying to do? You're, you're pumping that iron all the way to the point of fatigue. And so, you know, you get the number seven. And then you bring it back down and you know, and you start, your arms are shaking and, you know, this, and at some point, every one of us does it. If you ever, you, you go, little help here, <laughs> right? And you have a spotter or you have a friend who steps over and he puts his arms or his hands on the bar and he gives you that little extra boost that you need and you, <sighs> yeah, I'm done, right? You know, you know what I'm talking about? I would contend that that's exactly the way most of us are crying out to God. We do, we don't do, 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 right? We rely on our abilities, our strength, our knowledge, our, our goodness and willpower, and we're just pumping that away. Yeah, I'm fighting sin, fighting it, fighting it, fighting it. Ah, little help here. Hey, little help here. Oh, help. <laughs> Right? That is the cry of the legalist. Okay? It's not a cry of despair. It's a cry of, I, I can do this. I've got this. I just need a little help getting across the finish line. And I know in my own life, I can just see entire seasons of my life where that's how I related to the Lord. No wonder sin was kicking my rear. 
No wonder I wasn't getting any victory over sin or traction over addictions or anything else because I was trying to do it through my willpower, through my effort, through my white knuckling, whatever it may be. That is a flawed approach to crying out in despair. Yeah, you're in despair, but dude, that's not what Christ is talking about here. There is a fruitful approach. And this is what you see in verse 25. He cries out, wretched man that I am, Excuse me, in verse 24, there's a, there's a fruitful approach, and it should look like this, and you see it in verse 24. Um, let me illustrate it like this. I was at the gym one time, late at night, and because I like to go late at night so nobody sees me. And, uh, <laughs> but on this particular night, uh, there was this ripped dude. I mean, he was in there, and he was throwing around iron like it was nothing. And he was over there bench pressing, you know, me or more, right? I mean, so he was just jacking plates up back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And he, was, and he finally got done. And when he got done, he gave that primal scream, you know, you know the men will do and that kind of stuff. And, uh, and so he walks away and he's drying himself. And I, was, I had been watching him, you know, out of jealousy. And, uh, but then I noticed out from around the corner, he had his little boy with him, which was a complete violation of the gym rules, but we won't go there. It doesn't matter. It was cute. Dad and son are at the gym working out together. And while the dad was over there drying off, doing his thing, the little boy who looked maybe like he was about four years old, something like that, maybe he was five, he climbed up on the bench and he reaches up for the bar. And of course the bar's too high. So he ends up holding onto the bar and dangling with his feet barely touching thing. And he begins to grunt like dad. Oh, oh, oh. It was really cute, you know, as he was trying to do what dad did. So his dad sees what he's doing, he gets his attention, he goes, you want to you pump iron, son? He goes, yeah, dad, I want to pump iron. So he comes over and he adjusts the bench so that he could lay on it. He says, all right, put your hands on the bar. You ready? One, two, three, lift. And as the boy goes, and of course, the dad reaches down with his arms and he starts, right? And he's, and that little boy, he's putting, ah, 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 you know? But who was lifting the weight? The dad, right? The dad. There was total dependence upon the dad. That's the lesson here for us. When we cry out, it is a fruitful cry that we see here, oh, wretched man that I am, who will rescue me? Who will deliver me from the body of sin? It can't be a a little help here. No, it's a complete dependence upon God, realizing there is no way I'm ever going to lift this weight. We won't experience victory and deliverance until we come to the point of spiritual despair and dependency that Paul is expressing. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of sin and death? Because God, I certainly can't do it. Starts there. Starts with us crying out in humble despair and dependency. And it finishes out with verse 25 with this song of praise and faith and worship, believing the promises of our deliverer. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve that power of sin. Paul understood 
is complete dependence upon God, crying out to Him continually, faithfully. I can't do this, Lord. I need You to deliver me, to live Your life through me. I don't need help at the last minute across the finish line. I need help at the starting gate. I need You to run this race through me. I don't need you to give me a bottle of Gatorade halfway down the course. I need you to run this race through me because I cannot run this race in and of myself. This brings victory over sin. Paul says it differently, and I want to close with this passage of Scripture. He says it differently to the Galatians, but it's the exact same meaning. He says, so I say, let the Holy Spirit guide your lives. Then you won't go on doing what your sinful nature craves. The sinful nature wants to do evil, which is just the opposite of what the Spirit wants. And the Spirit gives us desires that are the opposite of what the sinful nature desires. These two forces are constantly fighting each other, so you are not free to carry out your good intentions. But when you're directed by the Spirit... You're no longer under the the obligation of the law of Moses. For the Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. There is no law against these things. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have nailed the passions and desires of their sinful nature to His cross and have crucified them there Since we are living by the Spirit, let us follow the Spirit's leading in every part of our lives. May that be our testimony in 2020, that we are a people, that we have victory over this internal battle because we are letting the Holy Spirit lead in every part of our lives. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this just incredibly beautiful passage of Scripture where your apostle, a man that so many of us look up to as an example of how to live the Christian life, cries out in despair, acknowledging this struggle, this war within each and every person who follows Jesus Christ, but also giving us the hope of the gospel. That just as we came into the family of God by crying out in dependence upon you, Lord Jesus, we can have victory in our sanctification by crying out honestly and continually and looking to you in faith, believing you never leave us, you never forsake us, you never get disgusted with us when we fail yet again, that you love us unconditionally because we are united to Jesus Christ You don't see our failure, Father. You see the beauty of our Savior in us. Help us to live in light of this beautiful and encouraging truth of who we are in Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.